This is Equipping Eve, the podcast that seeks to equip women with fruits of truth from God's Word. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ begins by being grounded in his word. So let's open our Bibles, ladies, and prepare to feast on the truth God has given us. Hello, ladies, and welcome to Equipping Eve. I am, as always, your host, Erin Benziger. And today I want to continue the um, series that we're going through on women in the Bible and how God uses women and how we see that in Scripture. And I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that I wanted to look at Hannah at some point, um, Samuel's mother. And so that is who we're going to look at today. I've kind of been on a first and second Samuel kick, um, partly because I've been listening to Alistair Begg preach through first and second Samuel, so I've kind of been in there quite a bit. Um, and the sermons are wonderful, by the way. And uh, and it just has given me a new appreciation for these Old Testament books and just how we see the unraveling of God's plan and not unraveling in a bad way, but like the unfolding perhaps is a better term. And it is a better term, the unfolding of God's plan throughout history and just how we can still see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, even in historical narrative. Um, And I think that's so key not to look for um, a metaphor of Jesus behind, you know, every word, but Jesus is there in the Old Testament. And if you can't find him, um, I'm sorry, that's a problem. So it's really important that we see how these Old Testament, even these Old Testament narratives, how they still point us toward Jesus and um, Hannah and her role in the great unfolding of God's plan throughout history is kind of amazing. And she's someone who I think is a little bit overlooked. And yet she really kind of opens up this book of First Samuel. And um, that's that's kind of neat, if you ask me. So open your Bibles, ladies, if you haven't already, to First Samuel chapter 1. And um, we're going to read quite a bit here. Um, I might skip over a few verses as I go. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Follow along. Today I'm reading from the ESV. Oh, yeah, and I probably will mispronounce things along the way, but what are you going to do? Okay, First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Verse 9. 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew what Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And uh, we're going to stop there for now, ladies. I encourage you, uh, we'll, we'll reference um, some further verses here, but I encourage you to keep reading to see Hannah's role here um, in these early chapter in this early chapter here of First um, Samuel and, and just the influence then that she ended up having on her son um, and how her faithfulness resulted in um, what Samuel would become. So, ladies, um, because Hannah is so fascinating to me, um, I still want to spend even more time looking at her and you know who she was and and her faithfulness um a, a couple of good resources as i said are alistair Begg's sermons um on these verses and um and another resource that i'm looking at today which is um a sermon by charles spurgeon on hannah here and his sermon is actually called hannah a woman of sorrowful spirit so i'll be referencing that kind of back and forth and so spurgeon gets his his title here from verse 15 where Hannah says I am a woman troubled in spirit so obviously Spurgeon was working off of um, the KJV translation so what are we seeing happening here in the text let's just look first of all at what's going on we have Elkanah, Panina, and Hannah Panina is Panina and Hannah are rivals but I don't see that Hannah I see the rivalry almost as one-sided, where Hannah is hurt by the fact that Panina has children, but isn't taking it out on Panina. At least we don't see that in the text, and we don't see that in the character of Hannah. On the other hand, we see that Panina is really quite a special person, um, if you're using the word special sarcastically. So, you know, this is this woman's life. Elkanah went and married two wives. So this is happening here in Old Testament times. We have a lot of biblical characters with multiple wives. That is not okay with God. He very clearly ordained that marriage is one woman, one man. Things were different. That does not mean just because Bible characters had multiple wives that it's okay to have multiple wives. And that's all I'm going to say about that. 
So what I love about the Spurgeon sermon here on Hannah is his observations about Hannah. And if we stop and we look at the text, we can see these for ourselves. And um, I think they're really precious, actually, some of the things that he points out. So here's this woman who is troubled in spirit or has a sorrowful spirit as we first meet her. But at the same time, she was a godly woman. She embodied true godliness. And as you read through, you can see that, right? As Spurgeon says, we are thoroughly certified that her heart was right with God. We cannot raise any question about the sincerity of her prayer or the prevalence of it. We do not doubt for a moment the truthfulness of her consecration. She was one that feared God above many, an eminently gracious woman, and yet a woman of sorrowful spirit. And I think this is something that we see often in the Christian life. Um, A couple of thoughts here, which I find a little bit interesting, is so often I think we are inclined to feel as though when we go to church or we're among other Christians, we have to be happy all the time. And people ask how you're doing and you have to say, oh, I'm doing fine. Even when things are really stinky or, you know, you're going through a tough time, you're experiencing anxiety, there's a rift in the family or something, but you, you feel like you can't talk about that, um, you know, in the church setting or among other Christians, except maybe your closest friends. It's, it's like you can't be real because Christians have the joy of the Lord. And so we should just always be happy and wearing a smile. Um, I used to be part of a um, very large global Bible study. Just leave it at that. Um, And this was the mindset. This was the mindset in that Bible study. You showed up there on your day, whenever it was, and you had to be all smiles. Like there was no sadness here because, oh, goody, we get to study the Bible for two hours. And, you know, no matter how much you love God's word, no matter how much you love God and Jesus, when you're hurting, you don't want to smile sometimes. It doesn't mean that you don't want to go to your Bible study and be encouraged by your sisters and the teaching and God's word, but you shouldn't have to feel like you have to fake a smile, right? So you don't have to be smiley all the time to be godly. And in fact, I know a lot of very happy people who are very much not godly. And, and Hannah demonstrates this, right? She's a, sorrow, a sorrowful woman. She's troubled. She wants a child. She's constantly taunted by Panina and like, what a life, right? Now, suffering is not a proof of salvation. And Spurgeon points that out as well in his sermon. But... At the same time, God doesn't promise us a rose garden. So all of those pastors, and there are many out there, uh, like television pastors, you know, who tell you, come to Jesus so that your life can be awesome. Well, that's not how that works. If you're truly saved, often you have a lot of hardship, whether it's actual persecution or it's just going through difficult times kind of to test your faith so that you can see the evidence of your faith or, or whatnot, or to grow you or strengthen you, however God's using those trials. Often trials are part of the Christian life. It doesn't mean for sure that you're saved just because you go through hard times, but we are not promised that everything's going to be rosy. 
And then Spurgeon takes an interesting tangent that I'm also going to take here. He says, there is very much that Christians experience which they never ought to experience. Half the troubles of life are homemade and utterly unnecessary. We afflict ourselves perhaps 10 times more than God afflicts us. We add many thorns to God's whip. When there would be but one, we must needs make nine. God sends one cloud by his providence and we raise a score by our unbelief. But taking all that off and making the still further abatement that the gospel commands us to rejoice in the Lord always and that it would never bid us to do so if there were not abundant causes and arguments for it yet. For all that, a sorrowful spirit may be possessed by one who most truly and deeply fears the Lord. So he's saying we create a lot of our own troubles. So (laughs) don't chalk all them up to being awesomely godly. But... A sorrowful spirit can still be possessed by someone who does truly love the Lord and possesses the joy of the Lord, but is still troubled. He says, never judge those whom you see sad and write them down as under the divine anger, for you might err most grievously and most cruelly in making so rash a judgment. Fools despise the afflicted, but wise men prize them. So Hannah possessed godliness despite her sorrow. And then he goes on and he points out that she was a lovable woman, you know, so here she, she was a sorrowful woman, but she obviously didn't, you know, mope around and let that impact all of her relationships and everything she did. And we see in verse eight, how much Alcana, her husband loves her, you know, am I not more to you than 10 sons? He gave her a double portion in verse five because he loved her. So he very much loved her. She was a very lovable woman. Spurgeon points out that she was a gentlewoman, again, versus her rival, Penina. Verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. But Hannah was a gentlewoman. She was thoughtful. She was very deliberate in her words and in her prayer to God and in her words to Eli. And then I love, in verse 18, she talks to Eli Eli says, may the God of Israel grant your petition. And then it says, she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So she spent time with the Lord. She's poured out her heart to God. And that's all we can do, right? And so then she went away and her face was no longer sad. And so again, still troubled in spirit, that doesn't go away. But she's resting in the Lord. She's resting in his promises. She's resting in his faithfulness and in the faith that he's given to her. And so she goes away. And her face is no longer sad. And in the interest of time, ladies, we're kind of going to jump ahead. So we read there that she did conceive and she bore a son. And in verse 22, uh, she did not go up to the yearly sacrifice the next time. She says, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. You see, Hannah also learned self-denial. She said in her prayer to God that if you will give me a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. She said that back in verse 11. So she's learned, she's willing to give up her son if she can have a son. And so she's saying to her husband, once he's weaned, I'm going to take him up and he will dwell there forever. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him, verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl and ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. 
They slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So she gives up her son to God, essentially. So she learned to have this faith and trust in God in giving up her son. She saw her prayer answered. God answers prayer, ladies. He answers it in his time and in his way. Hannah specifically prayed for a son and her specific prayer was answered. Ours may not be answered just as we think, but it will be answered in the best possible way so that God is glorified and for it will be answered in the best possible way so that it will be for our good and for God's glory. And we hear that so often, but it's true. And even if you don't think it's for your good, at first the answer comes and you're going, uh, this is not the answer it was supposed to be. It would be a lot better, Lord, if you do it this way. No, no, he knows. It may be a more painful answer, but he will grow you from that and he will do something with it. That's just the way it is. And then in chapter two, and we won't read through this, ladies, but I encourage you to read Hannah's prayer to the Lord. She is theologically trained. She knows her Bible. She knows her God. She knows what's going on there. And then um, as we move through that chapter in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So she visited her son every year. She made him a little robe every year. And we talked a couple episodes about um, how that robe kind of appears throughout um, 1 Samuel and how it ends up having a little bit of significance, this idea of Samuel's robe. And if you keep reading, you see the significance of Samuel. And we cannot ignore the influence that his mother had on him in those early years. And even after she gave him up um, so that he would be raised by and be raised um, there with Eli to be a prophet of the Lord, she still was very much involved in her son's life. You can see that visiting him, praying for him, and thanking the Lord for her answered prayer. And so this was way too short of a walk through Hannah, ladies, but I encourage you, as I said, uh, to take a closer look at these verses and see what you can learn from it. Spurgeon says, Hannah's name stands among the highly favored women because she was deeply sorrowing. It was by suffering and patience that she became so brave a witness for the Lord and could so sweetly sing, There is none holy as the Lord, neither is there any rock like our God. We cannot bear testimony unless we test the promise, and therefore happy is the man whom the Lord tests and qualifies to heave a testimony to the world that God is true. To that witness I would set my own personal seal, says Spurgeon. All right, ladies, as an endorsement today, um, I am going to encourage you to pick up a copy of this book where I got Spurgeon's sermon out of. Um, it's called Sermons on Women of the Old Testament. There's actually um, also a volume on women of the New Testament. I have not read all of the sermons yet, and I will say a little disclaimer. The first one I looked at, I'm not going to tell you which one it was, um, 
I was actually not a fan of the direction that the sermon took. It wasn't that the sermon was bad. It was just kind of using, you know, the, the story of the woman and the text as a jumping off point for another topic, and that seemed unhelpful. Um, but Spurgeon has a tendency to do that, as do many preachers people like today. Um, you know, they say they're preaching on one text, and as you sit there and listen to the sermon, you think, wait a minute, this is not the text that we were supposed to be taught today. But anyway, who am I? Um, but I enjoyed this sermon here on Hannah, and um, it looks like there's some good material in here. So I've not read through all of these, so it's like a half endorsement. Um, you know, it's Spurgeon, so like should be, you know, pretty good. But um, anyway, I like that someone collected these sermons together uh, so that we can kind of take a look at some of these great women of the Old Testament and how God used them in Scripture. And as a parting thought, ladies, I just want to challenge you to think about what you've learned from Hannah just through our, quick, our just through our quick race through um, the first chapter of 1 Samuel, but also through what you know of the story of Hannah um, and Alcana, her husband, and what have you learned if you go back and you read through this? What are you learning from that and how can you apply it to your own life? What are you learning from Hannah and from her faith and uh, the way that God used her and the way that God encouraged her and how can you apply that and be encouraged by that in your own life? All right, ladies, until next time, get in your Bibles, get on your knees, and get equipped. Thanks for listening.